This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by Leonard Michaels that was published just after his death in 2003. It's called Cryptology. Did Nachman want those memories? The Nachman he no longer remembered was certainly himself. After all, who else could it be? The story was chosen by Rivka Galchin, the author of the novel Atmospheric Disturbances. Her second story for The New Yorker appears in the new summer fiction issue, which features our top 20 fiction writers under the age of 40. Hi, Rivka. Hi. So tell me, how did you first come across cryptology? Had you been reading Lenny Michaels? I actually hadn't been reading Lenny Michaels and didn't even know who he was, even though he had been like a huge figure. But it was when I was a little too young and a little too clueless. And then the writer, Rebecca Curtis, suggested I read it as a kind of solution to something else that I was thinking through. You know, and then I fell in love with all the Nachman stories. Nachman, who's the hero of the story, is also the hero of, I think, seven other stories that Michaels wrote, sort of in the last uh, six, seven years of his life. Yeah. What was it about the story that, that grabbed you so much? I think the sense of avoiding recognition, like one of those kids' parties where you have like a, a label on your back and everyone talks to you as if you're that person and you have to figure out who you are, whether you're, you know, Superman or George Clooney. And and Nachman seems to be in that position where everyone else seems to have knowledge of him and all these reflections keep coming at him and it's kind of terrifying. So I, I don't know that mood I like. So Nachman, the character, is a mathematician in Los Angeles and he spends his days working on problems of logic and reasoning. And yet when he's out in the wider world, he's often confronted with unreasonableness and illogic, which which confuses him. Is there anything else that you think we should know before listening to the story? And that seems like a pretty good summary, like that he's someone who's sort of the one perspective he doesn't include very often is the subjective perspective. So he's sort of got like a full objective outlook. What's not objective about his outlook is the absence of subjectivity. Well, we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Rivka Galchin reading Cryptology by Leonard Michaels. Nachman had arrived in New York the previous evening and was walking along Fifth Avenue when she came up behind him, calling, Nachman, Nachman, is that you? He looked back and saw a woman shining with a happiness for which he, apparently, was responsible. His mere existence had turned on her lights. Nachman kissed her on both cheeks, and then they stood chatting at the corner of 42nd Street, the millions passing with the minutes. When Nachman parted from her, He was holding her business card and the key to her apartment in Chelsea, having promised to join her and her husband for dinner that evening. If you arrive before us, just wait in the apartment, she said. It's been so many years, Nachman. I'm Helen Ferris now. Do you know my husband, Benjamin Strong Ferris? He's a lawyer. Also a name in computer science and cryptology. I assume you're in New York for the cryptology conference. Benjamin goes there to find geniuses like you for his company. As a matter of fact, Nachman said, but she was still talking. It would be wonderful if we could have a drink, just you and me, and remember the old days, but I have to run. There'll be time to talk later. I can't tell you how glad I am that we ran into each other. Actually, Nachman, I followed you for about five blocks. I couldn't believe it was you. Benjamin will be so delighted. He's heard me talk about you so often. Should I cook or should we have dinner out? Oh, let's decide later. 
When she stopped talking, Nachman said that he didn't know the name Benjamin Strong Ferris, and he didn't consider himself a genius. I'm a good mathematician, he added. Good is rare enough, believe me. Helen Ferris smiled with affectionate understanding, as if his modesty amused her. But there was also something more. She seemed to believe that a special bond existed between her and Nachman. To disguise his ignorance, what special bond was there between them? Nachman became expansive, even somewhat confessional. He told Helen Ferris that he was indeed in New York for the cryptology conference. He'd been invited to a job interview by a representative of the Delphic Corporation, but whoever had invited him hadn't given his name. Helen Ferris obviously took great pleasure in listening to Nachman, and yet he saw a blankness in her rapt, almost delirious focus, as if she were not listening so much as appreciating. Her eyes devoured his, and her smile, which had a mischievous quality, also suggested a rictus in its unrelieved tension and shape. This intensity and her alarming red lipstick made Nachman think that she wanted to eat him. He wondered if a smile was an evolutionary phenomenon carried in the genes, a reflexive anticipation of a meal. Not necessarily made of people, but who knows what the ancestral diet was. Nachman smiled in response to Helen Ferris's smile, but he felt no desire to eat her. So the person who invited you didn't give his name, she prompted. The letter was signed by a secretary, Abigail M. Stokes. She just gave me the name of the hotel and a date and time for the interview. To tell the truth, I didn't really come to New York because of the interview. I wanted to visit my father, who lives in Brooklyn. I haven't seen him in years. And since Delphic was paying for my ticket and hotel room, why not? The interview was set for one o'clock this afternoon, and I figured they were taking me to lunch, but nobody was there to meet me. No one at the hotel desk had heard of the Delphic Corporation, and my room had been paid for by an individual whose name they weren't free to disclose. So since then, I've been walking around feeling a little, I don't know what, weirdly disappointed. It is certainly weird, Helen Ferris said, but why disappointed? You got a free trip to New York. How clever of you. You're sure there are no other names at the bottom of the letter? She asked. You know what I mean? It, it didn't say something like Abigail M. Stokes for Joe Schmo. Nachman wondered fleetingly if Helen Ferris thought he was an idiot. No Joe Schmo. Somebody anonymous wanted to interview me for a job. I have a job. I'm not looking for another one. But I agreed to come. Why not? I figured I might even learn about cryptology, an exciting field. A good mathematician could make a lot of money fooling with codes. Mind you, I said good. I didn't say genius. Would you have considered taking the job? Not seriously, though it would have been fun to be a millionaire. I fancied myself buying things like a dishwasher. But I don't work for money. You know what I mean. My salary pays my bills. I work like most people, not to waste my life. Have you been to Santa Monica? That's where I live. On the beach, you see people with nice bodies and no jobs, also no brains. Life is too short to waste a minute getting a sunburn. I've never even taken a vacation. I don't know why anybody would want to. Anyhow, as I said, I wanted to visit my father. This was an opportunity. Expenses paid by the Delphic mystery man. You don't own a dishwasher? Helen Ferris asked, giggling. I bet I know what happened. Delphic decided to hire somebody else before you arrived, and then they forgot all about you and went home. 
but they paid for my ticket and hotel room. They'll write it off. The cost of doing business. You feel disappointed, but it isn't the least bit personal. You mean nothing to them. I'm meaningless? Not to me, Helen Ferris said. Was she teasing him, or was she right? To the Delphic people, Nachman probably was meaningless. I've got to go, she said. I'm so excited. We'll have fun tonight. As she walked away, Nachman wondered how long it had been since he last saw Helen Ferris. He also wondered who, exactly, was Helen Ferris. She remembered him so well. She had called out his name in the street. How could he say, who are you? Another man might have been able to say it, not Nachman. In a few hours, she would expect him to show up and meet her husband. The prospect of joining strangers for dinner had something adventurous about it, even devilish and appropriate to New York. Nachman didn't know anyone in the city who was as friendly as his old friend, Helen Ferris, whoever she was. He was simply unable to remember her. Her wide cheekbones and dark, roundish face, with its maternally sexy brown eyes, looked Semitic, maybe a little Asian, but she might just as easily be Mexican or Puerto Rican. He'd known women who looked like her, but remembered none named Helen. She was quite attractive, though a little scary. You'd think he'd remember her for that reason. Had she noticed his confusion? People can tell if you recognize them or not. They see it in your eyes, hear it in your voice. Oh well. Nachman would get the question out of the way when he saw her again. It would be more embarrassing later than it would have been a few minutes ago, but he wouldn't let the evening pass without confessing. The key to Helen Ferris's apartment was in his pants pocket. Her card was in his wallet. Dinner was still a few hours away. Nachman continued walking aimlessly, trying to remember. How do you try to remember? You make yourself passive, receptive, available. If it comes, it comes. A strange kind of trying. He wondered if there had been a clue to her identity in what she'd said. Unfortunately, Nachman had done most of the talking. The look in Helen Ferris's eyes and her red smile came to him. Nothing else. She refused to step out of the shadows of his mind. The late October weather felt summery. But as the afternoon wore on, Nachman detected a quality in the breeze that was too poignant for summer, had too fine an edge. Another year was nearly over. Nachman liked the poignancy, could almost see it in the changing light. The sun would soon be lower in the sky. Darkness and cold would invade the streets and challenge people's energy, give steel to their thoughts. Nachman felt as if he were walking heroically into the heart of the drama, the adventure of the city. And not just because of this season. Helen Ferris was part of New York's endemic adventurousness. The crowds, the traffic, the buildings, the changing weather, the city's infinite complexity, its unknowability. Who could comprehend it? Nachman felt exhilarated. From a certain point of view, there was even an adventure in being stood up at the cryptology conference. Invited, all expenses paid to come 3,000 miles only to find nobody who gives a damn whether you came or not. No explanation, no apology, not even a note at the hotel desk. This couldn't have happened in hick towns like London, Paris, Rome, Berlin, and Tokyo. That was what made New York great. Nobody gave a shit about anybody. 
The truth was that Nachman was enraged. He had smiled as he talked to Helen Ferris. He hadn't let her see his anger. She might have thought that he was angry at her. Nachman chuckled to himself and shook his head ruefully, as if he required a moment of private ironic theater. His mood became philosophical. After all, he was morally compromised. He'd agreed to the interview in bad faith. He'd had no intention of changing jobs and had wanted only to visit his father. In fact, he had planned to go directly from the airport to his father's apartment, but when he phoned, once from the plane, then again from the airport, nobody had answered. His father was old and forgetful. He might have gone out. He might even have gone to visit relatives in Connecticut. So Nachman had taken a cab to the hotel. He'd visit his father tomorrow, if the old guy answered the goddamn phone. If not, he'd fly back to California feeling that he'd wasted his time. As for the sense of adventure, the weather and all that, he saw now that it had been a fantasy, a kind of lie. Nachman had simply been trying to give value to this trip. He could kid himself only so long before self-contempt made him see things as they were. Only a fool would accept an invitation to meet somebody who had no name. Nachman was a fool. That was now an established fact. Good. He felt much better. A few hours later, Nachman entered a building in Chelsea. The doorman, who had been given Nachman's name, said, Go right up, apartment 14B. The elevator was brightened by three half-mirrored walls. Nachman could see himself from head to waist in triplicate. These three half-Nachmans made him feel less rather than more visible. The reflection seemed mental rather than physical, but he was suddenly claustrophobic as if the elevator were overcrowded. Below the mirrors there was a walnut-stained surface embossed with carved flowers. A brass strip marked the place where the wood met the gray industrial carpeted floor, Nachman studied the light fixture directly above his head. A fat bulb glowed through a bowl of cloudy glass that was subtly textured. The elevator spoke for the building, Nachman thought. A confusion of materials suggesting luxurious waste. It carried him slowly to the 14th floor, then stopped with a jerk. Nothing about Helen Ferris had come to Nachman. He supposed that he must have known her when he was a graduate student at UCLA. He'd had quite a few acquaintances then, men and women with whom he'd since lost touch. There had been parties where he'd fallen into intense and transitory intimacy with people to whom he'd only nodded as they passed on campus later, avoiding eye contact. Wait a minute. Hadn't he once left a party with a dark girl who had been too drunk to drive? Hadn't he driven her in her Jaguar to her parents' house in Beverly Hills? Hadn't they... What... The elevator doors opened. No, that girl's name was Dolores. She looked nothing like Helen Ferris. There were four apartment doors, two on either side of the hall, which was carpeted in the same way as the elevator and was stunningly silent. Dim lights set in elaborate brass sconces trailed along the walls. Nachman found the door to 14B. He looked at a brass-rimmed eye hole as he pressed the black nipple-like bell. He heard a muffled gong inside the apartment. He waited. Nobody answered. He pressed the bell again and waited. Nobody answered. 
The key worked. The door opened into a large room. Hello, Nachman said, careful not to shriek. Anybody home? No one responded. He stepped inside, shut the door, and realized that he wasn't alone. An odor of perfumed soap lay on the air, which was faintly moist and warm. He heard water running and glanced at what he guessed was a bathroom door. It was partly open. Someone was taking a shower and had heard nothing because of the noise of the water. Nachman was reluctant to shout. People taking a shower feel defenseless and are easily frightened. Nachman stood in the large room. It was maybe 40 by 20 feet with a gleaming maple floor. A bar counter separated the kitchen area from the rest of the room. Furniture was clustered in the middle, floating in space. A glass-topped coffee table was set lengthwise between two red sofas, with black chairs at either end. Nachman noticed a roll-top desk against a wall and a library table holding stacks of papers. The room had tall windows that looked across the avenue toward the windows of other buildings. Near the farthest wall, there was a dresser and a bed with night tables and reading lamps. To the right of the bed, a spiral staircase led to an opening in the ceiling, apparently the second floor of the apartment. A suitcase was on the bed. It sat in the middle of a bulky white comforter that had been flung back, revealing silky cobalt blue sheets. At the foot of the bed was a large television on a wheeled aluminum stand that held magazines on a shelf above the wheels. In the ceiling, there were two rows of track lights. Who was in the shower? Helen or Benjamin Ferris? In answer to this question, Nachman heard voices. They were amplified in the largely hollow space of the room, as if in the barrel of a drum. The man's voice was emotionally neutral. The woman's voice was strained, higher-pitched. It was Helen Ferris. I'm not finished. Why don't you get out and let me finish? They were showering together, Nachman realized. I don't want to have to talk to him alone. Oh, for Christ's sake. You can talk to him until I come out. Fix him a drink, turn on the TV, and watch the ball game. Men like sports. You don't even have to talk to him. Be nice for once in your fucking life. Hey, 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 I'm supposed to be nice? Like I invited the schmuck to the apartment. I'll pick up the check at dinner, baby, but that's where it ends. This is your affair. Don't start with the affair business. He's not my type. You have types? I'm always nice to your friends, Benjamin, even when they bore me to death. Friend? You said he didn't even recognize you. So what? He's drifty. Not your average New York cocksmith, like some persons I could name. I'll remind him who I am at dinner. I'll be sitting there, for Christ's sake. He'll die. He won't know I told you anything. Besides, he probably doesn't remember that either. He's practically certifiable. I think his fly was unzipped. Don't make me jealous. Helen Ferris laughed. Benjamin Ferris went on. What's the guy's name? Nachman? What's wrong with Nachman? I didn't say there was anything wrong with it. It's your tone. You think Ferris is so beautiful? People are always saying, like the Ferris wheel? It embarrasses me. Nachman walked past the bathroom, crossing the 30 feet or so to the television set. He put the key on top of the TV. He'd heard enough. He was leaving. As he drew his hand away, the key fell to the floor. It had stuck to his fingertips, which were slightly damp. So were his palms. He was perspiring.
The key made a sharp clink when it hit the floor. Nachman bent quickly to retrieve it, as if to undo the noise. If they had heard the key fall, they knew he was in the apartment. He couldn't leave. He would have to confront them. No. He would shout hello and pretend that he'd just arrived. They would pretend that they didn't know he'd heard them talking about him. Every word the three of them said would be a lie. He put the key back on the television, and it remained there as he drew his hand away. He'd never before overheard people talking about him. It was unnerving. He'd been radically objectified like an insensate rock while his soul floated in the air. A general hurt spread within his chest and began to seep like a poison through his body. He couldn't think clearly. It was hard to breathe. Again, Nachman felt an impulse to leave, but he couldn't simply walk back to the door. If they heard the door shut behind him, they'd feel terrible, knowing Nachman had heard them. Why should he care? Nachman cared. The open suitcase on the bed was large and old-fashioned, made of yellow leather like a beautiful gladstone, with straps and metal corners. What he saw in the suitcase told him that Helen and Benjamin were packing for a trip. How nice. They did things together, traveled, showered, bickered, and said vile things about people who had never done them any harm. Their conjugal solidarity was daunting. If only Nachman had stayed in California, he'd have gone to work in his office at the Institute of Mathematics and never heard himself described as a drifty man who walks about with his fly unzipped. Nothing she had said was true, but she had said it. She had actually said it. We were all going to die, but Helen Ferris had to kill people. The voices persisted, but Nachman focused on the suitcase and tried not to listen. Shirts, underwear, dresses, trousers, and tennis shoes lay in a confused pile, and a stack of papers had been tossed on top. Nachman admired the indifference with which the expensive-looking clothes had been flung into the suitcase. He saw passports and airline ticket envelopes among the papers and reached out to open them. His hands were shaking. His heart swelled as he intruded upon the privacy of strangers. How could he do this? Before he'd engaged the question, he felt a soft pressure against his leg. He looked down and saw an exceptionally fat Siamese cat. It must have hidden under the bed, frightened of Nachman, but had now clearly decided that he was no threat. The cat leaped onto the bed and stepped into the suitcase, settling on top of the papers, as if it knew that Nachman had been about to look at them. The cat wanted Nachman's attention. Nachman stroked its back a fat, purring friend come to comfort and console him. While he stroked the cat with one hand, he tried to lift the corners of the papers with the other. There were no rugs or drapes in the room, nothing to absorb the voices, and the moisture in the air only sharpened them. Nachman wasn't listening, but then, abruptly, the water noise ceased. He's had a hard time, Helen Ferris said. He flew across the country to meet someone at the conference, and he was stood up. I felt sorry for him. If I were stood up, I wouldn't tell anyone. Word gets around. People think you're a schmuck. He tried to be cheerful, but I could tell he was furious. The minute I said hello, he started venting like a maniac. Helen Ferris's voice changed, becoming husky and teasing. Tell me, Benjamin, she said. What? That I'm beautiful. 
come here. She laughed. No, no, no. Nachman glanced toward the bathroom door. He imagined Helen Ferris's dark brown hair, cut level with her chin, now a wet black shining cap around her eyes and cheeks. Her mouth, free of lipstick, was softened and bloated by hot water. Nachman thought she'd look better without lipstick. He remembered her motherly, sexy eyes. Barefoot, she was maybe 5'2", as high as his chest. She had wide hips. Did she have large breasts? Nachman hadn't noticed. She squealed. The note was pitched so high that Nachman thought, terrified, that she had entered the room and was staring at him with shock and revulsion. He shut the suitcase instantly. On the cat. It thrashed against the leather. Instead of flipping the case open, Nachman pressed the lid down harder, as if to hide the evidence. Not too hard, not hurting the cat, but thus, unintentionally, Nachman gave it time to piss. When he realized that he was alone and hadn't been seen, he opened the case. The cat sped across the blue silk sheet and jumped onto the maple floor. It vanished behind the bar in the kitchen, and Nachman saw that it had deposited about a gallon of liquid in the suitcase. Letters and legal papers had softened and wrinkled, edges curling as urine attacked their fibers. In the elevator, Nachman kept his eyes on the doors and didn't glance at the mirrored walls. He didn't want to see his reflection. In a spasm of superstitious dread, he thought that if he saw it, he might be obliged to leave it behind. He wanted to get entirely out of the building, taking himself and his reflection far away from the Ferris couple, particularly the naked, squealing Helen Ferris. The Ferrises had taken something from him, torn a hole in his existence. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw the doorman nod. Nachman went by with no acknowledgement and was immediately outside in the anonymous street. He wanted no human recognition, however minimal, as he headed downtown. Strangers passed like ghostly shapes in the night. Nachman walked mindlessly, block after block, until, gradually, he stopped feeling devastated and, in the cool nighttime air of the city, recovered the good simplicity of being himself. A fool, he said, but mine own. He thought about finding a restaurant and having dinner but he decided that he wasn't hungry and continued walking. In Washington Square Park, Nachman came to an empty bench and sat down. The paths were shadowed by trees through which lamplight shone brokenly. He couldn't make out the features of passers-by and assumed that he was more or less invisible to them, too. Alone, unknown, unseen, he became deeply peaceful and free in his thoughts. He thought about Helen Ferris. Her smile, which Nachman had read as anticipation, he now understood had meant something different, like expectation. Nachman had been expected to light up just as she had, but he had failed to recognize her. He was no longer the person he had been. God knows what she thought of him now. Perhaps she believed that Nachman, not the cat, had pissed in the suitcase. She already thought he was drifty. Now she might think he was insane. What she might say about him beggared the imagination. She had given him her card. He could phone her tomorrow, or perhaps the day after, from California, and explain what had happened. He could ask her to tell him her maiden name, 
if he finally remembered who she was, he might then be enriched by memories of himself. Memories are far superior to photographs, for example, which are good only for nostalgia, not for understanding. But did Nachman want those memories? The Nachman he no longer remembered was certainly himself. After all, who else could it be? Nachman realized that he had just performed an inductive act. Induction and analogy, in which he was highly gifted, were critical to mathematical intelligence. It has been said that the unexamined life isn't worth living. Nachman wasn't against examining his life, but then, what was a life? The day before yesterday he'd been in California, and tomorrow he could be almost anywhere on the globe. He could change his name, learn a new language, start a new existence. He could go to an exotic place, get married, have children of various colors and surprising features. People did it all the time. He could herd yaks in Mongolia or be a slave trader in Sudan. It took no courage to consult a travel agent. Such metaphysicians were in the phone book. Get me a flight to Mongolia, Nachman said to himself, one way. How absurd. He wasn't adventurous. As for, quote, a life, it was what you read about in newspaper obituaries. He didn't need one. He would return to California and think only about mathematics. Just imagining Mongolia, with its bleak and freezing plains, had made him homesick. On a bench nearby, partly obscured by shadows, a man began playing a guitar. The tune was a bossa nova, exquisitely sad, something like a blues, only more finely nuanced and not at all macho. The rhythm was subtly engaging, and it seemed to caress Nachman's heart. He thought again about phoning Helen Ferris. He'd apologize, certainly, for not having waited until she and her husband came out of the bathroom. Vaguely, he supposed that they might have a lot to say to him. His thoughts became still more vague as they surrendered to the bossa nova, and soon he wasn't thinking at all, only following the tune. It made a lovely, sinuous shape, and then made it again and again, always a little different, and yet always the same, as the rhythm carried its exquisite sadness toward infinity. That was Rivka Galchin reading Cryptology by Leonard Michaels, which was published in The New Yorker in 2003, and then in his collected stories published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in 2007. So, Rivka, I... Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead... Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.
don't think I've mentioned this story has a kind of sad history here, which is that Lenny was working on this story and had sent it to me. And I had, it was actually a very different version that he first sent. And I had sent it back to him with some suggestions for expanding the story and revising the story. And he was working on that. And we'd done a couple of rounds uh, when he died suddenly. And um, we decided to publish the story right away as a kind of tribute to him. And so it came out nine days after he died. And uh, it was one of the most intense editing experiences I've had. I was really happy to be able to come back to this story at a happier time and just remember how funny it is <laughs> you know, and how, how sort of lighthearted it is. But it, I also remember maybe a year before he wrote it, I had a drink with Lenny one night and he was visiting New York and he told me that, I don't know if it was that day or the day before, but some woman had come up to him on the street and <laughs> had a very long conversation with him. And the conversation had ended without him having any idea who she was, <laughs> and, but clearly she had known him somehow. So it was wonderful to see him take that incident and then turn this into a story. But it also, for me, poses the question, how much of Lenny is in Nachman? And also how much that matters, you know, for, for a reader. What do you think? The real life question is always one of those things. I, it's, it's so hard not to be interested in it. It just seems... It's just like the difference between someone who can tell a good anecdote and can't. Like, I, I can imagine someone running into someone on the street and having a long conversation and thinking, God, I had no idea who that was. But in the story, it sort of becomes, he sort of finds what's interesting about that. Besides that it's quirky and socially awkward, he kind of finds the part of that that has the sense that other people have, like, keys. You know, other people have keys to you. And... uh that makes it more interesting than just an event that happened. He's sort of like mining mining something more than just the awkwardness of it. You mean that line about how discover, rediscovering memories of yourself is, is so interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and recovering like an old version of yourself that's gone that somehow this other person knows about. Even the whole cryptology theme and all the like kind of Greek scale epic gestures, which are a little bit satirical, but it does have that feeling of like, you know... Oedipus doesn't know it's his mom, but everyone else knows it's his mom. And, then, you know, that disparate knowledge. And the idea that if he, when he actually discovers what links him to this woman, he's going to die. Right. <laughs> exactly. He's just going to die. Um, what do you think is driving Helen Ferris? Why does she sort of come up to him in this overly enthusiastic way, invite him for dinner, insist on this friendship, and then say these horrible things behind his back? Why, why did she even bother inviting him? That's an interesting mystery as well, although... She does seem genuinely interested in him rather than the question being, does she like him? Does she not like him? She's like intrigued by his recurrence. I guess like for her, something from her past is sort of just, you know, popped up on the streets of New York and she's interested, even if perhaps she's not interested in him. She's, I guess, interested in some experience she had, whatever it might be. Perhaps for her, too, there's an unlocking of memories, though it's not unlocked because Nachman has no memory of it. <laughs> Um, there's the whole undercurrent of cryptology and he's invited there by, by the Delphic Corporation. You know, there's, there's a sense that some, some fate is going to be sealed, some mystery is going to be revealed. Do you think it ever is? Are there any answers in this story? Right. I guess it comes out properly oracular. You know, it, it seems both vague and precise at the end. There's that tune that, that repeats the same sound again and again with variant, but but also seems just impenetrable. So it almost you almost sort of feel like it was revealed, but the characters have already gone deaf or blind or something. 
if any mystery is resolved, it's certainly nothing about what happened between Helen and Nachman, but maybe mm-hmm. some small mystery is resolved about Nachman and, and his sort of small decision to not introspect and not pursue. Mm-hmm. I mean, the story is so much about identity and self-perception and, you know, as you've said, this sort of idea that Nachman might uncover some other version of himself whom he doesn't know anymore. Then there's that wonderful line about it being such a relief to be himself again, to rediscover himself at the end, and to go back to the self who didn't have to deal with Helen Ferris or who wasn't, a, you know, a drifty guy with his fly undone, but someone who can sort of sit there and appreciate music. How do you think that Nachman's sense of himself survives this episode? Do you think that he recovers from it, or do you think this is going to be something he's thinking about for years? <laughs> he seems like the kind of character who can kind of run from self-knowledge and keep up the pace and succeed in eluding self-knowledge for a long time. And that that, in a sense, is his self-knowledge, that his version of who he quote-unquote really is has to do with maintaining blinders to any other perspective. Like he's afraid of the mirrors in the elevator. And when he sits on the park bench, he's so relieved that it's too dark for anyone to make out his features. And that's when he suddenly becomes himself again in his mind. There's such an issue of visibility in the story, that that sense that he sees himself repeated three times in the mirror, and yet that makes him less there or less visible Like he's stolen. Yeah. (laughs) All of the Nachman stories to me, seem to have some kind of unanswered question in them or unsolved mystery. And it's almost as though they're set up in a way as mathematical problems. But they're not mathematical problems. They're social problems. You know, one of them has Nachman trying to decide whether he should write a paper for another student for money. Or one of them has the one where he his friend's wife is cheating on him. Should he tell the friend? You know, they seem very finely constructed as mathematical problems. Do you think that may be why... Michaels chose to make Nachman a mathematician. What what do you think he's playing with there? Yeah, I also was wondering about that because one thing he keeps himself safely from is just the idea of mathematicians like always having a runny nose and never kissing girls. <laughs> so he, he doesn't do that, but I do think it seems essential to the stories to watch to watch a mind so devoted to logic that that becomes their error. Because in almost all of the stories, you feel that Nachman makes what we would classically consider errors, even though maybe they're not errors. Like, for example, in the story where he sees his closest friend's wife seems to catch her having an affair. And then the story seems to close on the sense that all along what he was guided by was his own attraction to his friend's wife, even though he was sort of like convinced that he was following a rigorous logic. So it does make sense to have a character who has thinking that sounds so clean in order to sort of show where that clean thinking is, is illusionary. Mm-hmm. That story is even called of mystery. There is no end. <laughs> great. One thing that jumps out to me when reading this story or reading any of the series is a certain rhythm of the language. And, you know, Lenny spoke only Yiddish until he went to school until he was five or six. Do you hear that in, in his rhythms here? I wish my Yiddish were better, but I do. <laughs> there is definitely something that when you read the story, you can almost hear the way that declarations sound like questions. Like yeah. there's definitely that. Also a kind of tendency to elaborate, whereas other people would have finished it. Like you'll sort of like reach the end of a thought and then it seems like there's several short sentences undermining, nuancing, changing it a little bit. And that also just sounds both like Yiddish language and Yiddish thinking. 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of, um, well, let me be clear and, and modify and change and subpoint. A sort of posing of questions that are then maybe answered, maybe not answered, but at great length. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he also has this way of building the drama of a paragraph where he goes off and off and off on one tack and then completely changes course. I'm thinking of that, those lines where he's sort of like, you know, Paris, Tokyo, New York, where else could this have happened? That's so amazing. It's incredible. In fact, Nachman was enraged. You know, he wasn't trying. So there's sort of like this gleefulness in the language for me. Gleeful, not exaggeration, but sort of a willingness to fly and to fly up and then suddenly drop down that marks his particular style in these stories anyway. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Rivka Galchin is the author of the novel Atmospheric Disturbances, which is out in paperback from Picador. You can also find the audiobook of Atmospheric Disturbances and more than 75,000 other titles at the sponsor of this podcast, audible.com. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks. You can get a free audiobook and a 14-day trial by signing up at audible.com slash nyfiction. You can subscribe to and download previous episodes of this podcast in the iTunes store. Just search for New Yorker. Also, let us know what you think of this program on our Facebook page. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. 